down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and tear down doors. Welcome to another episode of Tasting Anarchy. I am your wine-drinking host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I am joined by... Mason Joseph. Your other host of renown and clout as our, our clout levels grow on Twitter and in the the <laughs> podcast universe. As the podcast war heats up. And yeah, yeah. The, the podcast. Okay. We, we've been having a good time for anybody who... Follows us at Tasting Anarchy on Twitter with kind of uh, Razin, Bird Archist, and Robbie the Fire Bernstein of the uh, Part of the Problem podcast. And or Bird get, Archist of uh, Fagcast. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. The Fagcast, the Friends Against Government, which I was on recently. Um, mm-hmm. So probably by this time episode comes out, you'll be able to go back and look at it. It's, it's somewhere in the 40s. I don't know if it's high 40s or low 40s, but it's somewhere in there. But yeah, so we've been having kind of a fun little war. I came up with this idea that Bird Archist and Robbie the Fire kind of sound alike, so I've been playing up that they're probably the same person, which... There's no probably. That they are the same person. (laughs) Yes. They are the same person. Right, right. So, um... Which means, how did Carr land such, like, somebody connected to, like, one of the biggest, like, positioned libertarians? Like, the... Or anarchists, really. Yeah. I don't know. Like, from the history that Bird and Carr told me, Bird and Carr met in, like, a chat, like, a a libertarian chat, and they just hit it off, so they decided that they were going to start a podcast. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, so that that seems to be their their story, and so I guess at the time Robbie didn't want to you know let everybody know who he was because everybody would be trying to you know get him in touch with uh, Dave Smith, mm-hmm. and so he was like, well, I'll just pretend that I'm I'm Bird Archist. That's just my yeah. that's my uh, my you know pseudonym, and he so, just he stuck with it for the show because from what I understand, Dave was like, we can't have Bird or we, I'm sorry, we can't have Robbie the Fire on this show. It's too low class. Um, and and uh, Robbie Fire was like, well, I'll just keep using you know Bird Archist. Nobody will know except yeah. for me because my hearing, as you know, Mason, quite excellent. <laughs> yes. So like I, I think Robbie the Fire uh, Bird Archist uh, took this uh, name from It's Always Sunny. Um, Charlie Day claims oh, yeah. to his character uh, in the show. Charlie uh, claims to be like the uh, preeminent bird law lawyer. So that's where I've always thought the bird archist comes from. Oh, that could be. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's. Uh, he he somehow was trying to start a beef. Um, you know, push territory with uh, Charlie Day, who <laughs> doesn't seem to have any of us on his radar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and, and get into the wine. This week, it's your wine, yeah. and I tried to match you a little bit with my own um, that you also picked several weeks ago, the mm-hmm. Pensador, but yours is yeah. new and exciting, and I would like you to you know go yeah. ahead and share and tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so um, one of the things that, you know, I didn't tell Jacob this specifically, but um, as of late, you know, we have been on a Rioja kick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, from Spain, so I've been enjoying Spanish wine a lot and Spanish varietals. Um, so at my local Kroger, they have a section not dedicated to Spain, but other reds, and there's a lot of Spanish ones in there. So inside of that, you know how um, Jacob, the uh, you know with chicken wire, like 
the, yeah. the wire fences to stop chickens sure. from escaping. Things. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we used to put that yeah. up to keep our small dogs in the backyard. Yeah. So have you ever seen the wine bottles that have that around it? Yeah. So the, yeah. the Spanish varietals a lot of times will have that around it. And I don't know why, but that's yeah. – they just do. And I'm not well, – it, it's, like it's like a gold mesh. Yeah. Well, to uh, plug one of our good friends, um, I think Jackson Blood will probably have something at least interesting to tell us about it because mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure he has some idea. But this wine has that around it. Now, I've seen this wine several times in the store, and it's never what I was looking for specifically. But – so I have the Aniciano, A-N-C-I-A-N-O, uh, Classico Granacha um, from Valencia, um, the Valencia being the area in Spain, uh, 2017. Uh, Granacha is a, another Spanish varietal. It's a red, um, typically. Well, not typically. It's a red. Um, and it used to be a lot of the kind of – it's not a cheap grape necessarily, but it is a cheap grape, but it was yeah. kind of like the filler grape for a lot of stuff, and okay. you know they would build off of it. Um, so El Pensador has a Granacha that I really enjoy. Um, so I thought, hey, I'm in Total Wine. I don't know what to get this week. Maybe I'll do the Granacha uh, from El Pensador since I did the Tempranillo the other day, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I went over to uh, the discount, and uh, you know me, I can't. I can't help but buy a perceived deal. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this was eighteen twenty nine supposedly, and they were selling it for nine eight nine ninety eight in the uh, discount rack. Um, now I did a little research online. <laughs> it's about a ten dollar wine, so I don't know if they okay. really ever sold it for eighteen twenty nine. Well, let me add a little anecdote in for sure. that. Is a, a lot of time I'm always very suspicious about Kroger's discount. Mm-hmm. That one that I recommended a couple of weeks ago, the 2012 Rioja, which was mm-hmm. uh, Marquis de something. Um, yeah. I can't remember what it was. That one was on sale at ten dollars, and I went to uh, I went to, to um, Total Wine, and mm-hmm. it was seventeen dollars. And then when I was actually at Kroger today trying to find the wine that you have, so I, I could also try it at the same mm-hmm. time. I went to go look to see if they still had that particular Rioja for ten bucks. Also seventeen dollars now. So mm-hmm. whether whether all of them are like that, in this one case, I did get a great deal. I got seven bucks off for a bottle of a very, I think, of, even at $17, I would say it was a fair price for that. Real yeah, hot. so what what I'll say is um, like the El Pensador and stuff like that, mm-hmm. they do sell those ones at the listed price. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've seen it for $16. Um, but I mean, they've had it on sale here, um, you know, six ninety nine and eight ninety nine. Yeah, uh, depending on which one you're getting. Yeah, and I got the El Pensador um, for six ninety nine today. Yeah, so that's the same price here for the mm-hmm. uh, Tempranillo. Um, so yeah, this is two thousand and seven or two thousand and seventeen. Um, it's thirteen five percent alcohol by volume. Um, so it is a very um, dark red purple in the glass. It's one of the few red wines where, like, I get the fruit notes on the nose, mm-hmm. um, so it, it has a good aroma to it. Um, kind of a berry smell, mm-hmm. um, and like on their website, they have some pretty good notes, like on the aroma. But um, like, so it it's it has the like tannicness to it where it dries out your mouth, but it doesn't have a lot of tannic flavor to me. Mm. And um, that might be because of that process. And um, there's a this process where they basically like take the they convert the acid um, that you were just telling me about. Like, yeah. I, I noticed it on their website. I couldn't figure out how to pronounce it, so neither of us going to try. It starts with an M. Um, I'm, I'm going to try one. I'm going to yeah. Google it. <laughs> so um, now 
I did something different with this wine, as Jacob knows. I opened this wine, you know, call it 6.30, it's 8.50 Eastern time. So I opened it over, oh, heck, over two hours ago. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't recork it. I normally recork pretty quickly. Um, the glass that I'm sipping on right now, I've had out for over 30 minutes. And it has significantly changed the flavor. So like right. at first, this was uh, was much more like the Tempranillo that Jacob has to me. Um has very, you know, a red wine taste, um, but it didn't have a lot of expressive flavor to it. So I'm going to let Jacob talk while I try to get yeah. another sip to get a little more description. Well, so that pro- that process is called malolactic, mm-hmm. um, and it's the process of turning um, the it's, – it's, it's part of the fermentation process, and I'm not really exactly sure how it's done, but it's a process in winemaking which you take the uh, tart-tasting malic acid and – that's naturally in grapes and kind of turn that into a softer tasting lactic acid, mm-hmm. which is like the lactic acid that's in cow milk. Um, hmm. My guess would be that the reason they they list that as being something in the wine is that there are people who are lactose intolerant. And I wonder if that lactic acid is the same as like the lactose that makes people have like an upset stomach. No, it's, uh, it's not. It- from what I understand, it's not. Okay. But that doesn't mean that people don't have a same sort of response, maybe different people or maybe, yeah. you know, maybe people who are lactose intolerant as well. Um, so this bottle is really interesting okay. because um, so the label has the company that imported it like designed into the label, like mm. printed on the label and everything like this. So I don't know if this is even actually like a full Spanish production wine. Like, cause like, you know how you and I were looking at the website and we we're having a little trouble understanding, following some of it. Yeah. Like I tried to follow it further out. Um, so this is well oiled wine co um, is the selected and imported by that. So this might be kind of one of those. And, you know, this would be something really to talk to Jackson about. Yeah. Um, this might be like, especially labeled for them, especially everything like that. But like, um, so, um, basically they state the name is made from perfectly ripe grapes, which are harvested from dry farmland, low yielding vineyards and are transformed into a smooth. It is very smooth. Um, generous, generous is a good word for this. Um, and I, I don't have the descriptive powers to say why it's generous, but like you get that feeling from it mm-hmm. um, with bright, uh, with bright red and blackberry fruit flavors. Um, definitely um, with a touch of spice, eh, spice, not so much, maybe in the uh, tannicness to it. I'm picking up a little more acid now that I've had it opened. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just me reading more into it, um, yeah. but it isn't drying my mouth out as much as it was. Um, so cooked pork or lamb. I actually had fast cooked pork today. I actually made, um, uh, goodness, um, schnitzel. So I had this with schnitzel, which, you know, first time I've actually had stuff along the lines, but, uh, moderately spicy Mexican food, Moroccan tangines or uh, mature cheeses. So this is the first type of wine where I've actually kind of like agree, like pork is really good with this. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because, you know, it's from uh, Valencia, which, you know, Valencia oranges and everything like that. Um, So, and uh, apparently, like, this wine takes, like, a dry and hot heat, which is, like, southern Spain. Mm -hmm. So, I wonder how well this would grow in Texas. Well, possibly. Well, yeah, the hotter, drier areas, like maybe High Plains or Mm -hmm. the, I think it's Mount Jackson or Mount Mount something. Um, Well, it's not as hot there as it is in Spain. Yeah, it's... According to the guy's website. Yeah, Spain can get hot. But, uh, yeah, yeah, but, I mean, like, the higher altitude, drier climates, it, it does get so hot here. The, the the problem, I guess, is actually a similar problem that Virginia has with wine is 
the humidity makes it so that the vines are so much more um, susceptible to various types of rot and mold and mildew. Mm. Um, and this is one of the reasons why, like, they've been trying to grow grapes in Virginia since the 1600s, and and with not with no success, but until recent it's, methods, they didn't have the yield. Yeah, they didn't get the yield that they needed. They and they were having. They would also they would have maybe a couple of good years, and then they just have a year where it just wiped them out, and their plants mm. died or whatever. And because a vine takes four or five years to mature fully, that's very devastating. And until modern practices came in, this is why Virginia is such an awesome wine region now. But we really didn't hear much about it until you know the later half of the 20th century. And it's because we now have the technology to make that land that's so perfect for growing grapes also be able to sustain the vines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, I mean, there are dry – well, I don't know Texas well enough to say this for sure, but I thought there were dry, hot, hot places in Texas. But There are. The high, you know. the high plains are pretty are pretty dry and hot, I think. Yeah. Um, it, of course, it's, I'm thinking- like where we are right now, it's not as humid as like where we live in Virginia, mm-hmm. but it is, it's still humid. It's not as, it's not like California where it's bone dry. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking, you know, I always, <laughs> my, my experience with Dallas or Texas is flying into, um, flying into Fort Worth yeah. and, you know, in and out and then, uh, driving through Amarillo up North. Right. In the, so Amarillo, in the, to me is the top. yeah, that's, that's <laughs> like Amarillo. I don't think it's in High Plains, the mm-hmm. viticulture area, but it's up that way, so it's dry. It's kind of deserty up there. And yeah. I, I really like that that kind of geography. Mm-hmm. I think it's very pretty. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, like I like my wife and I always talk about New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I, I like New Mexico too. I think it's I think it's pretty Nevada and those types of areas. Mm-hmm. I, they're very dry, and that's true. But it, it's just it's kind of got an austere beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and but uh, kind of going back real quick to the wine, uh, the. I was saying that once you like kind of let it sit out for a while and you don't normally do that, that's something that uh, Jackson Blood, which you guys can follow him at Jackson Blood One on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things that he recommended to me, and I've been doing it a little bit more uh, lately. Is just kind of leaving, like pouring a glass, leaving it out for fifteen or twenty minutes. Usually, I'll take a sip, see what it's like right away, mm-hmm. and then leave it out for fifteen twenty minutes. And it does really—I don't know if this is like psychosomatic, but it's—it does really kind of like open up the flavor a little bit, and it makes it less punchy and more smooth. And now, the like—I mean, I've—I've I've seen the science on it in the past. Yeah, because you know, I used to think, well, I used to think all that was bullcrap. Yeah. Um, but like, it, and this is, you know, just one of those things like you never think of, like you, you learn how science works. And then like, if you're not a scientist, you don't really think about like, oh, like scientifically things change. But like, you know, when they're bottled, like it's not being exposed it, like it does oxidize. And apparently Grenache, the, the wine varietal oxidizes very easily. Mm-hmm. So this is like one of those wines that um, it doesn't seem like they age a lot. At least okay. the way I was kind of reading it, like um, seems to tend to be younger. Um, but apparently it gets like a leather taste as it ages. Ooh, that which sounds interesting. Me sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah like that does sound um, like an interesting thing. Yeah, so this is you know uh, for ten dollars, and you know this is one of those things like always kind of great to talk to. Um, yeah, well, I've talked to Jackson once directly, yeah. um, but just the, you know, hearing like his price point suggestions and things like that, like I drink $10 like this, like any other variety, like this varietal at $10, I'm willing to try everything I can get my hands on now. Like it is such a, like Tempranil like is really good. And yeah. I think this wine pairs really well with that kind of. Um, well, Tempranillo, I, I think Tempranillo, I, I've been enjoying it a lot just because it is 
one that's grown a lot in Texas, but also because mm-hmm. I've been so into the Spanish Riojas lately, and mm-hmm. that's largely Tempranillo. It's, it's I think, a really good wine for food. Mm-hmm. And I like to have a glass of wine. Like today I made a, uh, a stir-fry beef with onions and um, – like I just kind of invented the sauce, you know, like, you know how you do that. Like you just, I was like, well, the sauce is going to be, um, a tablespoon of soy sauce, a tablespoon of fish, fermented fish sauce, um, mm-hmm. two cubes of beef bouillon, and then I'm just going to reduce it and that'll be the sauce. And, and it turned out pretty well. Um, oh, like, yeah, that's like the base sauce for like a million dishes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very, it is, it's just, it's just kind of like, and I, in my, and, uh, I should have used it. We, we've been using, instead of beef bouillon a lot lately, we've been using the dry uh, Russian soup bouillon, mm-hmm. which is just, I, I don't know exactly know what it is. Victoria got it at the Russian store, and it's very good. And we it's it. just MSG. It probably is. It's probably, yeah, it's probably just MSG. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's super be, delicious. To be honest, like, MSG is fantastic. Like, apparently it makes it actually really hyper, but, mm-hmm. like, I love MSG. <laughs> like, it's yeah. like it, it is great. Well, it's a great soup base, and or this mm-hmm. this stuff that she's got. So we, if we're not going to make like bone broth or spend the time to do like pho, like pho mm-hmm. out of bone, you know that kind of thing, yeah. we'll we'll use this, and it works really well. I I use the the beef bouillon cubes because I drink that at work, just because like mm-hmm. I like a hot drink and I don't want to drink coffee all day long. So I'll just put the beef bouillon cubes in there and just drink beef broth. Um, I mean, you're not drinking tea as much as you used to. No, like I'm, I'm cutting back a little bit on like the the high levels of caffeine. So because mm. I got, I think it it's making it difficult for me to sleep. Like I don't think I'm, I think mm. I'm sleeping, but I don't think I'm getting the quality of sleep I need. So I've been trying to cut back a little bit on the caffeine. Makes um, sense. Yeah. But let's go ahead and get into articles because we're getting off on a food tangent. But just so everybody knows, Tempranillo f- pairs really well with food, particularly fatty foods. Well, so let's let go back real quick because, yeah. you know, wine is the part of the show. But yeah. um, I think Grenache and Tempranillo, like one of these things about them is like they do – like both of them pair very well with food. Mm-hmm. And both of them pair very well with the type of food that you and I enjoy a lot, yeah. like um, more heavy proteins, yeah. especially proteins yeah. that have more of a, a fat content to mm-hmm. them. Um, so, you know, you know, you know, we both don't dislike lean chicken, um, but, you know, we beef, pork. Yeah. You know, like especially sausages. Right. Um, you know, it's not like we're going like, oh, we're gonna eat ten sausages today, but like yeah. Oh, you know, I might both, but <laughs> Well <laughs> that's the thing is you would eat only ten sausages. That's like, true. There yeah. would, just wouldn't be anything else. Yeah. Whereas like if I ate ten sausages it'd be with buns and french fries and yeah, like yeah. chips and that's stuff. That's true. But like they especially these Spanish reds, like they generally have a higher acidity, mm-hmm. um, and a good tannicness. So like they, they do a good job of clearing the palate in like asserting themselves. Yeah. And like I, I really like that in them because they're and that's one of the things I like about uh, you know, like Pinot Grigio and um Riesling is they they are, are more acidic whites, so they do cut through the food a lot. And this mm-hmm. is the first one where like with a red, I'm like, you know, because normally I'm like, oh, have this with a salad because like I like that change. Like this one, as I've opened it up and aged it, like I really or aired it out or oxidized it. I guess yeah. would be better description. Um, I'm really coming around on it, and I think it like you know, hey, if you just chug this, you wouldn't it wouldn't be as good. But like the first time I'm like, yeah, this is really good with what they suggest, fatty foods and grilled, you know, grilled yeah. stuff or spicy Mexican food. Right. Well, speaking yeah. of uh, high quality wines from faraway regions. Yes. <laughs> let's uh, return to Oregon <laughs> for uh, the whole Copper Cane debacle, which is finally, I wouldn't say it's come to a head, but it mm-hmm. there has been a 
a small resolution, and uh, this is from Wine Spectator. This article is called Joe Wagner Ordered to Change His Oregon Wine Labels, and it's by um, – actually, this dude's got a cool name. His name's Augustus. Augustus, like uh, mm-hmm. like Augustus Gloop. Augustus Weed. <laughs> Perfect name for Oregon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so Joe Joe Wagner, for those of you who don't know, is the owner of Copper Can or majority shareholder of Copper Can. I'm not sure how it works. Uh, um, his family owns it, so I well, think yeah. he's well. His he's family, a, his family, he's a, a third or second or third generation third, third generation viticulturist mm-hmm. or whatever. The previous company that they owned, he sold for three hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. and then he went on to make Copper Cane, which is also a very large wine company. Yeah, and he went on to make Copper Cane, but he also owns like yeah, three or four, four other, other yeah, things. yeah. But, and and they're all they're all the winemaking is based in Sonoma, mm-hmm. um, and so just to give like a brief background on this, Mason, you know it, but for the listeners, um, he's been buying grapes from the Willamette Valley. He's been shipping them down to Sonoma where his processing facilities are. He processes the grapes and then he bottles them and then he labels the 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 wines. The two that were contentious were. Um, uh, a Pinot Noir called Ulian or E-L-O-U-A-N. Ulian is how I'm going to say that. Mm-hmm. And the other one was Lam- Willamette, Willamette Journal. And these two, the various you know powers that be in Oregon, um, they believe that the way that they were labeled, not just the titles of the wine, but also him saying that their so- the grapes were sourced in the Willamette Valley and that sort of thing on the bottles, they felt that that was disingenuine and it didn't follow the uh, tobacco trade bureau restrictions, alcohol, tobacco, and trade bureau restrictions. So one thing I learned from this article, and I didn't know this, and I don't know if you knew this, Mason, when you want to label your wine, you have to submit the label to the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax Trade Bureau. I think we read that, and I think we talked about this before. Okay. And like... Maybe I maybe I had just forgotten about it, but well, they I they approved like it a year ago. It was like one guy who approves these labels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the problem is that they'll that they do frequently overturn their approved labels. Um, and there's not really a penalty on it. It's just that once the label's been overturned, you can't produce more for the for the following vintage uh, uh, with that label. Mm-hmm. Um, so the critics of Copper Cane see this as a victory, but they're a little bit pissed because they still feel like the 2017 labels should be changed because mm-hmm. I guess the deal is that um, not all of the wine is bottled at this point, and so it'll be about three years before it's all bottled and sold, wow. and they will still be producing these labels that, that the Oregonians think is um, you know, fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the critics are still suspicious that Copper Keen is not using 100% organ grapes. The law uh, requires that 100% organ grapes be used if you're going to label your wine an organ wine. You don't have to process the grapes in Oregon for it to be an organ wine, but you you have to process the grapes in an adjoining state, and you have to use 100% organ wine grapes in order for it to be called a one uh, organ wine. Let's go bottle wine in Idaho. Yeah, and you could. You could bottle in Idaho, and it would still be an organ wine as long as it's 100% uh, organ grapes. But it would not mm. be a Willamette Valley wine. It would be an organ wine. And so that's the point of contention right now that is still going to be under investigation and, and fighting uh, is that the the offended parties in Oregon don't believe that they're using 100% grapes. They have won this one point, which is that 
They believe that his labels were implying that it was Willamette Valley when it was not actually Willamette Valley, and they won mm-hmm. they won that point, but they did not win the point yet that he's not using 100% Willamette Valley or 100% Oregon Pinot Noir grapes to make his Pinot Noir. So he doesn't actually have to change as much of the label as I thought. So the titles, from what I understand, are going to remain the same. They're going to be Ulian and Willamette or Journal, but he now has to say Oregon wine on them. He can't say Willamette Valley source grapes. And um, it's got to be a lot more general. It can't be like he can't talk about how he went to you know specific places to source the grapes and that sort of thing. It's just got to be like, no, these have these have Oregon Pinot Noir. Mm. So Wagner says that uh, he believes that basically this is an attempt for, by Oregon wine growers and the Oregon uh, the or- whatever their version of the uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Tax Trade Bureau, they have one that's a state-level version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he believes that this is their attempt to force him to move production up to Oregon. For, oh, I'm sure. For, like, I'm sure that's yeah. part of it. I- I'm sure that's part of it as well, at least for some of them. Um, and, he's, mm-hmm. and he basically said, yeah, that's not happening. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not moving up there. And um, now this is interesting is I do kind of think just by reading this article and reading some of the quotes from Joe Wagner, he does sort of sound like a prick. At the mm. same time, he's a business person, and he's trying to do what's best for his business. And um, I, I think that you and I – so the Willameter Journal is a total wine-specific wine. Mm-hmm. I think you and I need to go get one of these and see, and see what it's like because I do oh, like Pinot. Yeah. I like Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what this is like. And I was just – I was going to kind of try to avoid these because I just – in like the heart of my hearts or the, or like in my gut or whatever, I was like, yeah, you know, I don't really want to be part of this whole fight. But at this point, I feel like both sides are kind of being dicks and I just want to try the wine. Yeah, and that, that's the thing is like, personally, I don't, uh, if he's truly not using like, stuff from the Willamette Valley, but saying it's from the Willamette Valley. I disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I, so this is, you know, the way I was thinking about this was, like from a like a trade bureau standpoint, if it was voluntary, mm-hmm. like I submit my label to this board who gives out a sticker and they, you know, I present this documentation. They take it, you know, they do the research they're going to do. They take what they're going to take with good faith. You know, they act appropriately. Right. They go, okay, you know, we looked at everything. We think everything's in order and here's your sticker. And then, you know, you come along and go, well, wait, 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 you dummies and provide all this counter evidence. And then we do, you know, a further in-depth research and then it turns out I'm bullcrap. Yeah. So then I have to change my label. So I don't mm. necessarily disagree with the fact that the, the tax bureau says like, hey, he's got to change the label. Okay. Yeah. But I disagree with the fact that it's enforced by a gun. Yes. And, yeah, and I agree with that. And so that's the thing that like the whole reason I don't think he's being a prick because it's not like they came to him and said, hey, man, you're damaging our brands. And we would like you to change it in this way and laid out a roadmap. And he went, F you, I'm going to continue. Like, you know, they may have gone to him and asked him to change it, but they didn't do it. Like, I have a feeling like they didn't approach it like the situation, like, you know, when you like would approach somebody and be like, hey, man, you know, we're neighbors. We've been neighbors for 10 years. Mm -hmm. The music's too loud tonight. Can you turn it down? Yeah. Like they didn't go, you know, and this is the thing is like, you know, they like, they're not taking into consideration that, you know, the whole smoke taint issue. Like, is this issue being further enforced because he refused to buy those $3 million worth of grapes for because of smoke taint and mm-hmm. Oregon's just trying to stick it to him now because it's lost sales revenue to them and that sort of thing? Or did this or did he do that as revenge? Like, yes, there was smoke taint, but he also was like, hey, I'm just not going to buy these grapes. 
because yeah. he he bought like and that's the thing that like kind of like i wonder is is he such a big force in the market out there that these people are trying to get an unfair advantage on him mm-hmm. and like yeah he can be a prick he, you don't have to do business with him yeah exactly Whereas, well and that's like, that's kind of sort of where i was thinking about that as well mm-hmm. is is along those lines it's like yeah he does seem kind of like a prick and, and you know what? a lot of times like second and third generation people in an industry are bricks but well, it doesn't, it doesn't mean is, that like, they don't know what they're doing so yeah and here's the thing is i don't think he seems like a prick well i think from this article and the way i summarize it he doesn't but there's i guess because i've, I've been reading a lot more about it mm-hmm. when you when you read his quotes and you read kind of and it may just be the way that the journalists are presenting it. He does seem from the quotes and from the attitude that he presents that he's just kind of a jerk. Well, but to me, but it's, that, it's that could of, be a totally I, – I could be totally off the mark with that. Well, like the way I like to think of it is, you know, you're down here minding your own business in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And then like I go, hey, man, you remember them fish you had mm-hmm. like or this transaction we had? You know, like to me it seems like people who aren't as successful as this guy mm-hmm. are trying to make his life more difficult yeah. to further their own economic things. It's not like they outcompeted him and then he went and had – you know, the Hells Angels bust up their vineyard. Right. You know, or light their fields on fire. Mm-hmm. He was, he's very successful. Like, he had the like, brand that he sold for a lot of money. And then, and then it's not like he's running, you know, like a loss business right. now to like a tax. No, he's doing really well here. And people are like, oh, we got it. To me, it just seems like people who want to take down a guy who's doing better, a peg, yeah, to enforce rules. And, you know, I think Jackson could give a little more. Well, like, and I, yeah, and I think he could, and one of the reasons why I think he could is because my initial instinct is to be on Copper Kane's side in this case, mm-hmm. um, and just through talking to Jackson a little bit on Twitter about it, like he does, he has an interesting balance on it, and, he, and there is like something that you and I are probably not privy to, and Jackson would be able to shed a little bit more light on is mm-hmm. the is that in there are like accepted practices that are kind of like gentlemen's agreements kind of things is that mm-hmm. you, you just don't do certain things in an industry because it's poor form it doesn't mean that it needs to be enforced by a gun but it means that everybody else is going to be like yeah this guy's not a good guy to be doing business with because he's he doesn't adhere to the standards that are you know traditional standards in you know organ wine or whatever mm-hmm. um and so that's kind of like it, it would be interesting. We should have Jackson actually on again about this. Once they get the once they get the the last part of this ironed out and it stops mm-hmm. being news, we should have him on to kind of talk to us a little bit about this, and we could each prepare a couple of questions for him about it because he mm-hmm. understands the the viticulture area and the labeling stuff a little bit better than you and I do. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say a little bit, a lot better because to me, I'm still <laughs> I'm still kind of struggling with like why does it matter if it's called Willameter? Um, mm-hmm. And and also because I don't ever go looking for a specific. Reason region of grapes but like from a person who likes european wines perspective the region is what you're looking for not the varietal so yeah and i think but this so this is to me one of those things where like so in the 1970s like toyota and honda started entering the u.s market with cars they finally got through whatever nonsense government restrictions and they were coming out with these micro cars that got amazing gas mileage but you know basically killed you if you wrecked it you know those sort of things yeah. And like the US car industry started acting like, oh, like this isn't done. Like, you know, they, they tried to use the government to enforce their thing. They tried to use their crappy business practices because they had all acted as a cartel against foreign imports and right. didn't improve their cars like in some sort of protected market. Because mm-hmm. that's always the 
it's always the thing that people do say when they try to pass some sort of trade restriction is, oh, our industry needs protection so we can compete. Right. Like we need to, we need to grow and, and better ourselves. You're telling me GM needed to grow and better itself, Ford or Chrysler, you know, like these yeah. the big three or whatever. No, they didn't make better cars. They continue to make crappy cars and use the government's rules to fight mm-hmm. against it. Yep. Here's a guy who's making really good wine because people are buying it mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, but it's, it doesn't have the, and like, I don't like, I get what Jack's, I think not necessarily i don't obviously i don't know jackson's full logic and point because i don't know him well enough to say it but like you know when we were talking about the idea of the terroir yeah like i understand when you're talking about labeling something a bordeaux right because that is a a style of wine i get people being offended when you say oh this is a bordeaux from alaska yeah like no it's bordeaux france wine i get people being upset Mm -hmm. but if it's labeled it's from alaska fine but like, you know, he calls it the Willamette Journal and then he says it's sourced from the Willamette Valley. Well, it was. All of that is true. Oh, it right. wasn't bottled in the Willamette Valley? I bet nine out of ten people who are drinking wine would be like, who gives a crap? It's not like the, they're trying to make things a more of a big deal and they're trying to take away some of the innovation that the U.S. market has to be more like the European market and have these weird enforcements of rules and these further business problems. And that's what I like to me is very annoying is they're setting up this practice to have like trade restrictions. So you and I couldn't go out there, buy Willamette Valley grapes, which they want to sell, they have excess, and then bottle them somewhere else where, you know, maybe we can't afford land in the Willamette Valley. But three valleys over that, you know, was devastated, you know, in some fire or something like Mm -hmm. that, we can. Right. Now just making it more like difficult because you and I then have to spend all this time trying to figure out all these complex yeah. rules so that it's just trade protectionism. Well, it's let me, not, let me uh, derail us a little bit real quick because sure. you're right. It is, <laughs> it is trade protectionism, but this is going to kind of lead into our next topic. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a good segue, but also um, – to go back to terroir real quick, I have been doing a lot of terroir research, and I'm going to be Ooh. doing a mini episode um, either next week or the week after, mm-hmm. uh, like a, a quick 20 minute breakdown on terroir and the history of terroir. Mm-hmm. For those of you, those of you who are interested, it is a French concept, but it does go back further than the French wine industry, back to mm-hmm. the Greeks and Romans and, and all that sort of stuff. So that's a little taste of it. Um, our next topic, though, does have some interesting trade. Um, aspects to it, and that is the uh, 20, I guess it would be the 2018 Farm Bill. Well, let's take a quick second in okay. between all of that and uh, do some plugs. I got plugs so. after this article. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, but I, I have two more articles. That's why I wanted to get to them. Oh, I, I didn't realize we had two more. Okay. Yeah, go, yeah. No, go ahead. Okay, so this is actually not a very long article for us, but I, I thought it was important for you and me to bring it up um, because there is something that's part of it that you wouldn't think would be part of a farm bill. And those of you who are like <laughs> involved in the libertarian movement, you probably know what we're talking about. But let's go through real quick the items that are in the farm bill that pertain to wine and grapes. Um, so the farm bill d- did pass the House and Senate, um, and it is expected to be signed into law by Trump, I guess, next week. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or maybe it was this week. I, I don't know for sure. But this is a article from um, winebusiness.com, and it is basically just a, a breakdown of, of what is in the bill that is pertains to wine. So um, there are a couple of items in the bill that are what they're called specialty. Uh, so they're called specialty crops or specialty crop. Uh, it's like specialty crop provisions or something like that. So mm-hmm. the um, the first part is known as the SCRI, which is a specialty crop research initiative. 
And so this bill provides that, the SCRI, with $80 million per year in crop specialty crop research. Some of that will go to grapes. It will not all go to grapes. There are other specialty crops. Um, but there is an earmark for an additional $25 million per year for citrus plants. So that is not going to be giving to the grapes. So the $80 million is going to be split up between all of the specialty crops, which what that is, I don't know. But <laughs> grapes are included in the specialty crops. So <laughs> the second provision that pertains to grape is the Market Access Program, known as MAP, M-A-P. Um, this helps uh, specialty crops gain access to international markets and fund export programs. So this year, the bill is specifically flagged for California, Idaho, New York, Oregon, and Washington specialty crops. A lot of those are grapes for wine. Um, mm -hmm. It is going to be $200 million over the next five years for these specialty crops in those states. The more, majority of the funds... Uh, from this portion of the bill are flagged for wine and um, the Wine Institute of California, which is a, I guess, a research, um, a research and international trade institute that helps viticulture areas gain access to a wire, wider world market, or supposedly it does. Um, there's also a provision for the uh, specialty crop block grant. So that is $85 million a year that is just kind of discretionary, whatever the regulators decide to spend on that. That could be given to wineries in uh, new AVAs. And actually, if you look at the most recent um, release from the um, Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax, and Trade Bureau, the TTB, they have actually opened up a couple of new viticulture areas, and they've mm -hmm. expanded a few viticulture areas this year. One of them is actually Monticello Viticulture Area near near Mason. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, those, those, uh, special crop, the specialty crop block grants could go to those areas to help develop those areas. Um, the farm bill also provides pest provisions, which do benefit, uh, or they could benefit the wine industry. There's also $500 million flagged for local agricultural market programs. And this is like, um, helping like local wines gain access to their local market. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense, which to me sort of makes sense, but at the same time, like, why is it part of the bill? Um, Sounds socialism. <laughs> exactly. And then there's also, uh, some provisions for research in mechanization, in particular harvesting grapes with machines rather than harvesting grapes by hand. Hmm. Um, that's for research. I don't know what the, what's going to come out of that. Now, this all of that stuff, it, yeah, Darpa, exactly. Like they'll have they'll have those like those weird like scary robots running around picking grapes. Well, yeah, but let's see that what they'll what they'll do is they'll say like, oh, this robot's going to be you know designed to cut hanging things. Mm -hmm. So they'll use it in their torture program to cut off people's balls as they mm -hmm. torture them. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, we learned to do it when we were cutting wine grapes. Right, exactly, like, yeah, oh, exactly. God. And then we re they repurposed it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so real <laughs> quick on the, the special area thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of that goes to funding like multi-state research projects mm -hmm. and like these weird, like they, a lot of the genetics on wine and stuff like that comes from that research. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, it like... It's very interesting stuff. It's not yeah, stuff it's that really eight hundred fifty-six billion dollar bill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like it's just not stuff that needs to be done for it. it the wine industry is a lucrative industry. It's a luxury industry. It mm -hmm. doesn't. Well, I mean, you and I would think nothing needs taxpayer funding, but a luxury industry in particular doesn't need taxpayer funding. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. Like the the thing that frustrates me about this is like 
the you know the alcohol tobacco and tax beer or whatever um basically created like their ability to license avas and then is like oh we'll give you money like you know it's just a self-perpetuating cycle where like these these agencies create get created and then they have to come up with like reasons to exist and then Congress has to come up with reasons to fund them. Right, exactly. Oh, they exist. Like, no, like, you know, the Monticello, like, AVA, like, Thomas Jefferson would have lost his friggin' mind. Yeah. Like, he would have lit the fields on fire right. rather than let them fund it. Yeah, I mean, and, least, and, and Thomas like, Jefferson, if you look into it, he attempted to grow wine grapes at one point and uh, didn't do a very good job because they kept dying. Yeah. Um, and then, actually, I think they also, they tried making, um, what's the what's that, Amer- the American Southern grape? It, the, it's like the size of a golf ball. It's uh, Muscadine. Muscadine, yeah. I think yeah. he tried to do Muscadine, and, and nobody really liked it very much. But I am very interested in trying a Muscadine grape just because it's supposed to be very different it's a very herbal very floral As eating grape they're yeah. god awful <laughs> okay well, well one of these days you and i are going to try a muscadine because we both have been living well you've been living in the south most of your life i've been living mm-hmm. in the south at this point the majority of my life and i really it's, i just it's the, it's a quintessential southern grape they've been making wine out of it forever I, i'm curious to try it yeah um but let's move on to the more sinister like this all this is kind of like you know, like it, it sucks because it does cause, you know, great market distortions and mm-hmm. it's just not something that needs to be done. But, you know, one thing that in particular stood out to me about this portion is that they they specifically flagged uh, funding for California, Idaho, New York, Oregon, and Washington. And now Idaho uh, does grow wine, wine grapes, and they do grow other specialty crops besides wine grapes. So you mean potatoes. They, well, the, I don't know if those are specialty great or specialty items, but I'm sure they are. <laughs> they probably are. But uh, one of the things about Idaho is that they're not well known for wine, and mm-hmm. the fact that there is a special earmark for them always makes me suspicious that there was a holdout in the Ohio either senator or one of their Congress people that yeah that they were holding out and they were like no we don't want to deal with this thing and they because of the next provision and the next mm-hmm. provision is it wasn't even part of the bill it was part of the like resolution to vote on the bill mm-hmm. so in order to so th- this is the most ridiculous part of just government in general is in order to vote on this bill they had to vote on another bill that would that would like dictate what they could debate on that bill Mm-hmm. In, con- yeah, so, in in the House of Representatives. So let me give a little bit more of a better breakdown of the idea of this. Yeah, because the logic makes sense in some ways, um, but it's also one of those things that you and I railed against. Kind of the idea of like when people were talking about the full tidewater libertarian party. Um, so like in Robert Rules of Procedure sort of thing, like because these bill these farm bills and these spending bills have become so utterly massive. You get people like Thomas Massey, who's going to be like, no, 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 I'm going to talk about everything in this bill, line by line. And what they'll do is they'll go, no, you can only talk about these six things to try to make it so that Congress can get, and I'm going to use the words, use air quotes, it's job done. So like the idea is the bills have gotten so incredibly large, they go, well, you know, here are the things that we're going to allow ourselves to discuss on this bill. And then if you agree with that, then the bill can move forward out of committee and actually then be those six things or whatever can be brought up. Whereas you're talking like an $856 billion spending bill, and it's not like they went ahead and bought the moon from like the Martians, you know, for like 700 billion. Yes, the US will buy the moon and then tacked on, you know, another 156 billion to like put a, you know, 
I don't know, Donald Trump's face on it or something <laughs> like, so that's, that's the whole point of these things is like, they specifically put these weird writers in other bills to try to stop people from talking about mm-hmm. what we're going to discuss next. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's kind of what we're, what we're getting to next is that in the resolution to vote on this bill, there was a provision that would prevent the 115th uh, Congress from voting on the War Powers Act that has passed the Senate that is withdrawing the United States from the conflict in Yemen. As long as the conflict fighters were not supposedly al-Qaeda. Yeah. Well, and they are, but the ones that are al-Qaeda are the ones that are on our side. So, well, no, so but that's what I'm saying is like that's what they – how – so – and we'll discuss this after we get through this part, so I'll, I'll stop derailing mm-hmm. us in a second, yeah. but – just keep that in mind that I said that. <laughs> well, and that's that's really all I have to say about this is that the that Paul Ryan in, introduced this portion, or I guess he allowed it to go through. I'm not sure if he introduced it. No, um, I don't believe he did. I think it was – I forget who it was. Yeah. But yeah. I know that among others, Thomas Massey basically was just like, this is complete bullshit. How mm-hmm. How is this – how are we not even allowed to debate – because it wasn't just a block on on the war powers vote; it was also a block on debate. They're mm-hmm. Like we can't now, we can't talk about this because you put it into a a farm bill and, yeah, and into a resolution to talk about the farm bill. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. uh, go ahead and say what you wanted to say about it, because that's really all I had. I, all I had to say. This is from a reason article or a reason blog post, actually. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, when when it was happening, which at this point I'm a little bit out of date on it because I didn't go back and do a huge amount of additional research. This was my initial research for the show, and things have changed since then. But from what I understand, this the resolution did pass. They are not going to be debating this issue, and um, the farm bill is now on the desk of Donald Trump, and yeah. he's he has basically a license to do whatever he wants in Yemen until the 116th Congress comes into effect or, or whatever they call it yeah, like comes so together he doesn't he doesn't necessarily have a license to do whatever he wants in congress so there are a couple of points to bring up to this um but you're right in in essence that's the way the government's going to play it um so what i was trying to say is so in the senatorial portion they said mm-hmm. that unless the people are al-qaeda then they can't prosecute war in yemen and Bob Corker tried to put some weird nonsense in there to basically kind of change that statement. But the gun government has done this before. We're mm-hmm. basically, oh, as long as they're not Al-Qaeda, we can't attack them. And then they'll yeah. just say that they're Al-Qaeda, whether the people claim to be Al-Qaeda or not, if they right. wanted to continue fighting. Mm-hmm. So the other point is, and this is, you know, you didn't see like a lot of the Israeli um, lobby, like, freaking out the Senate was passing this because it's the same thing that like um, Tom Woods and a bunch of other people talked about, like the fact that, you know, the U.S. Cong, like when Obama was president, they basically kept voting to repeal Obamacare continually. And then like when Trump's president, they're like, oh, we can't get it done. And you're like, yeah, what the crap? So like that's kind of the thing is like the, they, everybody was freaking out and kind of going like, oh, look at what the Senate did. No, the Senate didn't do anything. They barely passed the Senate. And even then, like, it wouldn't have survived a veto attack from the president. Like, so the president supposedly has to, like, the Congress apparently can't pull back the War Powers Act, these War Powers Act, because right. the president can veto their choice. Well, no, as Tom Woods has said, and, you know, several other people associated with Tom Woods, all three branches of the government are co-equal, and all three branches of the government are supposed to interpret the Constitution. The fact that we allow the, you know, like, and this is what used to be my complaint about you know, um, Andrew Jackson, like Andrew Jackson just kind of basically told, you know, he famously said to the, uh, to the government, like, or to the Congress, like I have the army, like, right. 
where's your army, you know, Senate or whomever, or, you know, how are you going to enforce these things? Well, the U.S. Congress could just simply say, no, mm -hmm. we're literally turning off the money tap today. Like they're trying to turn off the money tap by basically shutting down the government in like to stop the border wall thing. So mm -hmm. like Congress is not hamstrung. Like the courts could come out and basically be like, yeah, the Congress doesn't have the authority in the constitution to cede the war powers act. Right. And this is not, you know, define the definition of the global war on terror is not defined enough. And they could basically hamstring the president that way. And the way the government has been allowing itself to be hamstrung by the Supreme court decisions, like that could theoretically stop it before the war, the, the year is out. Like they could just be like, no, that's just none of what you're doing is allowed. And then, yeah. you know, he would have to become a tyrant, which, you know, realistically, he would just be enforcing what every president, other president has done is basically said, oh, I'm going to do what I want and right. do it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, you know, so I mean, that's really basically you've kind of said everything that I kind of wanted to say about this is, mm -hmm. is I, I agree. Like it, it's kind of like a. I wouldn't even say it's like a catch twenty two, but it's like it's a convoluted mess of government kind of yeah, where it's like they they all have agreed to basically. I wouldn't even say that they're agree agreeing to cede power, but they're agreeing to give themselves more power, and it makes more sense for them to concentrate it into the presidency because once the president's gone, they can all be like, "Well, that was him. Reelect me," and and then they can continue to accumulate power and that sort of thing too. But like, I mean, that's more of a like a cynical look at it or whatever. But but the, I mean, that's like the, that's the traditional like, and that's the thing is like these are so many five D chess moves mm -hmm. like. All of them are things doing things because, yeah. like, you know, you can easily be like, "Well, the president did that. I didn't do that. Oh, yeah. it was the last Congress, and it wasn't me." And like, you I, know, I had, people. I, like, had a, I had a good tweet on the chess stuff recently where oh, yeah. um, somebody said something like Nancy Pelosi said something, and uh, some guy commented on. He was like. Is this like 8D chess at this point? And I said, no, no, no. You have to pass the bill to discover what level of chess we're witnessing. <laughs> so, I thought it was yeah. pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I, I was patting myself on the back for it. I was like, yeah, good job, Jake. Good job. <laughs> yeah, that is a good one. So, like, or, you know, that uh, Cortez woman, um, mm. you know, who's not even in Congress now. And, like, the people are acting like, you know, she's the wave, like, and she's going to be super powerful. Yet, like, you know, if Thomas Massey was up there saying these things, you know, yeah. saying what he says all the time, people, people don't pay attention to him. Well, so like, I think, why? yeah, I mean, the, the thing too about like Cortez, I, I do think that libertarians are a little bit harder on her than they should be because I don't think it's very um, conducive to convincing left-leaning people to be libertarians. Mm -hmm. be like when they go like, oh, she's just an idiot or whatever. She's not an idiot. I mean, she's, she's wrong. Oh, I was just about to prove she was an idiot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't, that may be, but when you're, mm -hmm. if you're having a conversation with somebody who likes her, because most mm -hmm. of the time, people don't really care about what their policies are. They either like or they don't like somebody. It, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with um, how logical they are or how smart they are. It just it has it. It's a person. This is the problem with politics in general is that it's a popularity contest. You know, Trump is not the most brilliant man ever, but he won the contest because he gives a large percentage of the population was like, I like him. He's a straight shooter kind of thing. He just says it like it is. But like Rothbard should have been dictator of the country or whatever. He's the most mm -hmm. logical, the most well-researched, the mo all of those types of things. Why wasn't he the dictator? Because that's not the contest we're at. So if we want to, if we want to convince other people to be libertarians, we can't be like, oh, that or that Orcasio Cortez is a moron. Because when you're talking to somebody who likes her, they go like, well, I like her, and mm -hmm. and then immediately that shuts down the conversation. So you've got to be like, look, it, it's 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 kind of clear to me that she is she's trying to do something for poor people or whatever. Whatever it is that her goal is, she's trying her best to do it. 
but she is just incorrect on these items and we can walk through it and I can convince you. And this has actually been working for me a little bit with my cousin who I keep, mm-hmm. I keep giving everybody updates on my conversations with my cousin is there are, he's a left winger. He's like a Bernie Sanders left winger. Grew up in Los Angeles. His mom is a lawyer and a very like heavy left wing, like advocacy lawyer. His dad is a rock star or I don't know about a star, but like, you know, he's, he's gained success. Yeah, he's a star. Okay, so rock star. So he's like, you know, he makes his money being a musician. So, you know, he grew up in a very a world that's artsy and like advocacy and mm-hmm. is and he's a super smart kid. But when I present him these arguments from like the libertarian anarchist perspective, every single time he or not every single time, but like Tons and tons of times he's like, huh, I've actually never heard that argument. So it's not always – it's not ever, always that they're like sinister leftists or they're sinister conservatives or whatever. It's that they've never been presented with the other side mm-hmm. a, a, from a person who cares about them, from a person who um, – I wouldn't even say like gives them like um, – like consideration, like I'm not, I like his ideas. I think are ridiculous, but mm-hmm. um, I respect him enough to go like I don't agree with you, but let's talk about it, and I'll tell you why I think that what you're advocating is incorrect. And 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 a you lot respect of respect him enough to attempt to correct him, yeah, and not belittle him, yeah, not belittle him exactly. Like <laughs> I'm not gonna be like, oh, what do you know? You're just a college student. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, no, I mean, like, look. You know, the very first thing, and I think this has made him very open to it, is I said, look, everything that the government does is ultimately backed up by the point of a gun. And he was like, what what are you talking about? And I was like, look, I mean, like, if, like, I don't want to be taxed, the only reason, like, I pay my taxes is because my employer withdraws them from my check and pays them to the IRS. And the only reason my employer withdraws them from my check is because they've been told by the IRS, who has tons of guns backing them up, that if they don't, their their business will be shut down. And he goes, oh, by the force of a gun. Yeah, yeah, by the force of a gun. And he goes, you know what? I never thought about that. It's never been presented to me that way. And I said, you know, you and I are going to have continu- – we're going to continue having these conversations because you're interesting, I'm interesting, and we want to talk. Every single position that I have is ultimately going to come down to that is I believe in something called the NAP. I think it's logical, and I think that it is a great foundation for you to to, to to develop a world philosophy. And the NAP means you can do whatever the hell you want as long as you keep your hands to yourself. And mm-hmm. and he goes, "Well, that's what I believe too." And I say, "And I and I and I believe that you do." But the where it breaks down is that you don't realize that paying for things or the government doing things ultimately requires them to point a gun at somebody else to get money to do those things. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you know, I've never heard it presented that way. That's something it's going to give me a lot to think about. And, you know, we've continued this conversation. A lot of it revolves around global warming or, or climate change and global warming. Yeah. Global warming. <laughs> you don't, don't. And here's the thing. Like I, I'm not, I don't say it to insult your cousin or anything like that, but I'm not allowing them to move the goalpost. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not old. Me? He's not old enough to remember when it was global warming, which I is is insane. I, I just can't believe that's true. Th- think about this: ten years ago, when you and I first met, mm-hmm. he was nine years old. Yeah, and I think it changed to global cl- climate change three years ago. That's so. not no no. When you and I first met, it had started changing to climate change, and he was not old enough for it to be something that he would care about. You know, he he cared about video games and bugs back then because he wanted to be huh. a bug like a bug researcher. Yeah. So like the, it was just not even on his radar. Even if it was five years ago that that something changed, he was fourteen and not political. Mm-hmm. So for you and like- me, like I mean, for you and me, this this whole global warming, climate change debate, like. 
I can think back to when I was in second grade thinking about this mm-hmm. because it was such because politics have been such a major part of my life for so long. Yeah, but he grew up in he grew up in Southern California with a activist family. Well, yeah, with an activist. That's true, but it but it was a it was Southern California where it was it wasn't talked about because it was accepted. It, there's no debate, so it's it's from his perspective. This is happening. And there was never been any debate about it. Yeah, but that's that's what's what I'm trying to say is like maybe it, and maybe it was changing earlier, yeah. and maybe it changed in L.A. You know that area where he grew up faster than I than I know. Mm-hmm. But to me, like it's been since I've been listening to Tom Woods, and it hasn't been I haven't been listening to Tom Woods for more than three years. Mm-hmm. That it changed from global warming to climate change. Mm-hmm. As the, I think. I th- I, we'll, 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 we'll go ahead and look at this up because I don't think yeah. we'll resolve it by arguing. I think that this started. No, 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 I, th- I, I think it started. Well, we're not arguing either way. Well, but. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, what I'm, I think it started. I think it actually started around this, the time of inconvenient truth. I think they started changing it to climate change then. I. I think maybe a few years after it. Okay. Because well, I think, you know what? Let's, think... well, let's revisit it because I don't know for sure. But like yeah. what was what was insane to me when I was talking, he did have a vague recollection, recollection of it being global warming. Mm-hmm. He had no recollection of the discussion ever being global cooling, which was the discussion when his dad was a kid. Mm-hmm. So – and the only reason I know about it is because like I've been versed – I've been you know engaged well, in this. Well, that's what my dad told me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when I talked to him about that, he was like – he was like he, – he thought I was joking. That I, he was like, ha, ha, ha. And I was like, no, no, no. Go ask your dad. This is what they told him when he was a kid in school. And he went and asked. And his dad was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. The the world was going to like turn into like a new ice age. We were all going to be frozen over and like in, you know, underneath like big ice caps and stuff like that. And he was like, I had never heard this. This has never been told to me. This has never been. And I said, yeah. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong because for – and this is something I think that um, – and this actually comes let's, – let's go and do plugs because this comes to mm-hmm. one of my plugs. Bob Murphy was on Mises Weekend uh, on the weekend of December 7th, um, and he was talking to Jeff Deist about his research in climate change. And one thing that he said really reaffirms this is that libertarians, global warming, climate change, global cooling, all that sort of stuff is not relevant to our argument about it. Mm-hmm. Our argument doesn't need to be – we don't need to be reviewing people's papers and seeing if they're biased or not or whatever. Our argument is when you come to the conclusion that global warming is happening or global cooling is happening or climate change or whatever the deal is, is happening, it's it's not our job to question that because we're not experts in that climate science. We there, If there are libertarian climate scientists, that's their job to question that sort of stuff. But the climate scientist, like somebody saying 97% of scientists agree with such and such does not mean that policy X, Y, and Z need to be implemented. That is a Mm -hmm. policy decision that policy experts would theoretically be able to implement, not something that a climate scientist can recommend. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, one of the questions that libertarians would have to ask themselves would be, does the emission of fossil fuels in Africa, for example, does that violate the NAP? And and also the cost, the cost against like um, – so like for example, we've all benefited from global warming for all of these years. But basically what like the Barack Obamas and the uh, Emmanuel Marcons of the world are saying is that we in the West have all benefited from burning coal and using oil and all that sort of stuff for the last 100 years. You in Africa, you whose life would be greatly improved by using coal and by using fossil fuels, you're not allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. And this is a very, I think, arrogant position to take is because a like and a good example of this is what's going on in France right now with all the protests to Marcon, like a increase of gas tax of whatever the percentage is, you know, seven seven percent or eight percent or whatever the deal, mm-hmm. whatever it is, 
because I, I, it's not one of our articles today. I don't know what the percentage is. It was like seven across okay. the board. So across the board, an increase of, of this energy tax to him, that's nothing. That that's that's perfectly that's perfectly reasonable for him to make his conscience ease. But for mm-hmm. a a poor working class person to have an increase in their transportation costs or an increase in their heating costs or cooling costs of seven percent is such an enormous imposition. That is what kind of tipped the you know to use a global warming thing. That's what tipped the iceberg. Uh, <laughs> that is what is causing a lot of these riots i think is that there's a lot of economic unrest and the the people the rulers the ones who are making these laws are so out of touch with how these cost increases affect normal people that they have no they had no idea that by doing this it would just be the you know the, the straw that broke the camel's back mm-hmm. and kind of going back to this mises this mises weekend article or thing with bob murphy and jeff dice they kind of go over a lot of that where Bob Murphy says, look, I've done a lot of the research on this. And as a ec- economist, my job was to go through all the research and look and see the economics of it. And he's like, a lot of the people who are making these recommendations, economic policy recommendations, are not economists. They don't understand the ramifications of the things that they're at, they're advocating. And it's not like Bob Murphy in a lot of his recommendations is taking like the extremist Austrian point of view. He's like, no, like I can take a very mainstream point of view and just point out that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, like uh, Krugman, he should be saying this is wrong because he's a mainstream economist, but his ideology has overruled his, um, overruled his, you know, economic sense, I guess. Yeah. Like his intellectual purity. Yeah. So like, I'll plug Bob Murphy again. So Bob and Tom's Contra Krugman episode that came out on Tuesday, December 14th of 2018, Mm -hmm. um, they talk about like how would libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism kind of solve these things Mm -hmm. and, you know, like climate change, terrorism and things like that. And one of the things they point out about terrorism, it's like, well, most of the reason these people want to attack us is because we attacked them first. Right. Or our government did something to quasi attack them, you know, like whatever. And then he was talking about like, there's some like climate change tracker website or something like that. And, you know, they go through the evidence um, and they kind of go like, okay, well, if everybody held up to their end of the bargain on the Paris Accords, we would be at 3.5 C of warming. Okay. And the new, like the new freak out is we can't go over two. Okay. Like, yeah, if everybody followed what they pledged on the Paris Climate Accords, we'd still miss that mark by more than double almost. Right. You know what? I got one more thing to say about this actually. Sure. And this is from Dave Smith, who I also want to give a shout out to because he has just had a beautiful baby daughter. And stealing all of my ideas. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. He did. He stole your idea of having a beautiful baby daughter. So no, it being being abolitionist <laughs> and also and also knocking up his wife to have a beautiful baby daughter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I didn't have that idea, yeah. but <laughs> well, you know what he and he's very happy and I, I listened to his episode this week and he was ecstatic. Like I, I I've never I, I've, I hope so. Yeah, it, I've never heard him happier. Such a, such a wonderful thing. Yeah, it is a wonderful thing and he's a really wonderful guy. And just having listened to him for the last, you know, four or five years, it, it really makes it it makes me happy that he is happy having what I would consider a fulfilling life, like a, fam- mm. a family life. Like that's like for me is like the apex of your life is to have a family life, to be married, to have mm. have well have kids. It, it one way or the other is not a huge deal to me, but to have be, to be married and have like a purpose in life that is family oriented to me is like the apex. And when I first started listening to Dave, he was not at all in that area, but now he's married <laughs> and he has a kid, and he's so yeah. happy, and it makes me so happy. 
But one of the things he brought up, and I thought this was like a really good point. I don't know if he got this from somebody else or if he came up with this on his own, but he was saying, imagine that, that scientists in 1918 were deciding for us what the temperature of the earth should be. Mm-hmm. We would think they were all a bunch of fools because in 1918, they were scientific retards. And compared to like now, we're... Phrenology. We're, <laughs> right. We're, deci- <laughs> we're deciding today what the temperature is supposed to be for our great-grandkids 100 years from now. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Imagine, just imagine that. Imagine that that we're deciding that a two percent or a two degree increase is okay, but a one degree increase is not, or a two degree cooling is not. We're deciding this for people who are a hundred years away from us. Think about mm-hmm. the like the just the pure arrogance of that to think that we know what's appropriate for that." Well, I mean, like, that's the thing is like, and so this goes back to the something, you know, I think I'm going to derail the entire show at this point, but like my argument or my talking to you about time preference today, like through text, like my opinion now, and I think this leads to it is like the pure difference of time, like time preference. Yeah. Like if you're a family person, your time preference is a much higher or a longer time horizon. And most leftists seem to want to have, like they, like, you know, we're always talking about how the left seems to be running from one position to the next. Yeah. And I think it's because their time preference is so short on actions. They, like, they, I want to see this guy deplatformed. He's been deplatformed. Uh, 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 Conan O'Brien's this. I've got to do this. You know, like, their time preference for everything is so quick. And I, and I think it, you know, maybe it's a, you know, we, you and I are more cynical on certain things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see a lot of leftists as like people who seem to be very depressed and like, it, it yeah. seems like they, like they just don't expect to be a, and right. you know, maybe their time preference is impacted by their thought about global warming and they right. are, you know, have global warming and they don't think they're going to live for another hundred years sure. or whatever it is. Whereas you and I are like, we might be immortal. Like, I, I I mean I like the the older I get the more I'm convinced that in my reality I will never die. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and not even from like a religious standpoint, from because from a religious standpoint, I think that like I'm going to live forever. But from like a like earthly standpoint, I don't really see like the way that medical technology is progressing and like my own personal health. I'm like I don't really see any reason why I wouldn't die or why yeah, I would die. Yeah, and that's that's the thing is like so to me like we're we're kind of at that position where like you and I's time preference is incredibly different. And I think like, you know, people like Tom Woods and Lou Rockwell, like their time preference is incredibly different than like most leftists. And people always wonder like, you know, can you convert, you know, leftists to this and can you do that? And like it, to me, it seems like it's a purely a time preference difference. You you have to push their time horizon out in order for them to start thinking the way that you and I think or the way. Yeah. yeah. And because that's the thing is like, you know, like what happens when you win? It's like, what do you mean? Like, well, if everything goes the way, exactly the way you want, where does that leave you in all of this? Yeah. Well, I fought the good cause. Well, so did Solzhenitsyn. Right. He went and fought the Nazis. And when he came back with those skills on how to defeat, which was a really shitty army by comparison to the World War One standards, like the Nazi Germany army was bad. Um, he just got very lucky a lot. Like they put him in prison. Right. Where cannibalism happened. Like, yeah. you know, like he, he was imprisoned after having fought the good fight. So what's that? Where does that leave you? Well, well, they wouldn't imprison me. It's like, well, you know, blah, 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 leftist was eaten alive. You know, well, you know, he was a bad person. It's like, well, you're not a great, you're not a great person either. Like, not that I'm a great person, you know, like that's the, like, it, it seems to me that like, it's all driven by this time horizon where people are like, 
oh no, 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 we've got to do this. Now, like, I think it's the, and I think the only thing that breaks down in that argument is like when they go point out like global warming, it's like, well, I'm thinking about the people in the future. It's like, well, you're not really. I think they're thinking about their own, their own uh, conscience. Yeah. So, well, and you know, let's go ahead and finish with the plug because it it wasn't something that I planned on talking a huge amount about, but, (laughs) but I, I agree like that. That's kind of the thing. And, um, so we plugged Dave Smith, we plugged Bob Murphy, and and we plugged Mises Weekend with Jeff Dice. Uh, Bob mm-hmm. Murphy also he's got a, that new show, the Bob Murphy Show. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I'm going to self plug. I don't know if that oh, yeah. is uh, if that's appropriate or not, but go check out episode 33 and episode 34 of Tasting Anarchy. We, that's with the ones that we had Jackson Blood on. One's a mini episode. It's only about 20 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he had a lot of really good information on both of those episodes. And this is also sort of a plug for Jackson Blood. You can follow him on Twitter at Jackson Blood One. He's had a lot of really interesting insights, interactions with different uh, libertarians on there. Like so, some of you may know Mance Raider, whose um, real name is like Pete something. And mm-hmm. uh, and so Jackson has some pretty cool points. I think against against uh, not really against, but like to the point of. You know, you know how like libertarians sometimes they they'll they'll. I think this is very interesting. I think it really is just a a, a matter of the time that you and I exist in. Is mm-hmm. where every once in a while a libertarian will try to be point out that our enemy is not just the left; it's also the right. Yes, and they're not wrong. But the reason that like our time in our time we are most focused on the left is because the left is the most vocal or most obnoxious you know like i don't really i don't really see the kkk being a problem in 2018 i well, do like, that's the thing is i don't think the kkk is the right yeah you know what and i wouldn't i would I, that's probably true and i and also i wouldn't say that like uh you know the the neo-nazis and like united socialist party or whatever i think i would say that they're left but the left-right yeah. spectrum i think is incorrect for a libertarian to even think about the left-right spectrum is a distraction the mm-hmm. the, the, the true spectrum is authoritarian and, and libertarian or authoritarian and anarchist. And um, I think that's where, you know, we want to look at. So Jackson Blood making great, awesome points on Twitter. Uh, Mance Raider Pit. also making awesome points. He's, he's a cool Raymond, dude. Pete, Pete Raymond, that's it, yeah. Um, he's a cool guy. Also, uh, I was recently, I think I mentioned this earlier in the show, I was recently on the Friends Against Government. Shout mm-hmm. out to Bird Arcus and Carr Campit. They're cool cats, and they were a lot of fun to talk to. I'm hoping that I'm going to have um, – so just for like a future episode, it'll probably be a mini episode for you guys. Car Campit has a special iced wine recipe that he wants to share with me. Mm. Uh, I, I'm I'm making that sound a lot more fancy than it is. It's from what he told me. It's like Walmart wine ice and in a solo cup. So uh, we'll see how that is. I'll try that, and he and I will talk about you know various liberty things in that episode. Oh, oh. I'll, uh, I'll tell you ahead of time. Um, my uh, Ashley's stepdad, mm-hmm. um, so my father-in-law, uh, does do uh, black box wine mm-hmm. on ice. Pretty good. Really? Okay. All Pretty right. good. Yeah. Like I think he does the cab on ice. Um, the, the, you, you know, know what? The black box wine cab, I, I plug that on Friends Against Government. Mm-hmm. The black box cab is good. I, I don't really – I don't care if it's low quality or not. It's a good cab. So you're you're supposed to be out here in March. Yeah, um, possibly black box cab. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do that because you know what? That's that. Has, and you know what? I think actually Nate said he might be out there around that time too. So if we can get him to come down to Virginia Beach or Norfolk area, yeah. maybe, maybe we can all three reminisce about black box because it's, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah. 
So that'd be fun. Do you, do you have any other plugs? Because I got one more article I want us to get to. It's a very short one. Well, so you know, we didn't plug ourselves. Oh, uh, yeah. So other than what we already have, basically. Yeah. So. Um, Tasting Anarchy on, uh, you know, uh, Twitter, where you want to see Jacob uh, continuing the flame war, um, bringing down a uh, bird and a uh, Robbie, uh, well, bird Robbie, uh, yeah. Barabi. Barabi. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to just refer to him as Barabi for now. We'll figure out how to spell that and forget in the next 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so tastinganarchy.com, where if we ever get our stuff together, you know, we'll have uh, posts about wines we've tried, especially stuff outside of the show. Um you know, reviews to things and then, you know, hopefully more content as, you know, we kind of flush out our ideas and thoughts as, as time allows. Um, so tasting anarchy at gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, um, so just for Jacob, um, you know, the, uh, you know, no, Naomi Brockwell. Yeah. So she was on Tom Woods the other day. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. There's a platform that she was talking about where like, instead of Patreon, you can get like Bitcurrent or Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. or uh, any you know like there's i think there's like five or six um currencies they accept right now so bitcoin's one of them so like you, you people can back you in that um but on top of that there was another one where they like so that's like bitpacker yeah but there's another thing where it's like a free um it's like a social media site sort of thing mm-hmm. where she figured out a way to everything she posts to youtube immediately mirrors to this other platform oh, okay. so if we can ever get youtube working yeah. for the show we can automatically mirror to that and it'll just self-post it i need so, to, i need to work on that because our youtube yeah. somebody actually plugged our youtube the other day on twitter and i was like oh, crap really? nothing is on youtube <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so um like you know so it's one of those ones that, you know we obviously you know we're a podcast so yeah we should be on patreon but like i was like well we're anarchists so we should be on this bitcoin mm. <laughs> bitcoin thing instead so yeah, I'm I'm, and, I'm I'm okay with either that one. That platform's a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with either one. I mean, the big yeah. the the Patreon thing is irritating me lately because of who they've been deplatforming. But it's that's their choice. It's you know I'm sure they are beholden to their to the public opinion. So well, I don't think they're beholden to public opinion at all. I think they're I think they're it's an echo chamber that has had a fart go off in it. Yeah. That um. People think the global platforms are going to turn against these people. Whereas like, you know, when you're, you're looking at like a ring that was suspected of possible child pornography and like the, you know, the big global processors immediately cut ties. Mm -hmm. Like most of the governments outside of like the UK where most of the financial credit card processing doesn't happen. Yeah. Like this is us based and the us has kind of been like, yeah, we're, we're not touching that with a 10 foot pole right like on the federal level so i think this is a lot of like this is going to burn out when like mastercard or visa starts to notice profits going down when the next recession hits yeah like they're just going to turn around and be like no you're done it's like excuse me it's like yeah we're just going to clean house of you your board's going to change like they'll just start changing things right so you know i i think this like whole left right paradigm of like super thing is going to like just burn out in a, a little bit so yeah, that's probably true because I mean, when your your priorities change when you're in a recession or like, yeah. and, and well, if, their if, priorities change. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, even yours and my priorities may change just depending on how the job market is. If we're true, if we're true, set up, yeah. yeah. I mean, if we're set up to, to do, I mean, you and I will probably always record because we're friends, and it's and the reason we do this show is mostly so we can talk to each other. But oh, uh, and the wine, yeah, and the wine, you know. But <laughs> we'll see, we'll see how things go. Uh, yeah. The next recession, if it's the way that I've been predicting for like <laughs> the last ten years. 
Uh, you mean the last 15? No. Right. I mean, I've been <laughs> predicting like the worst recession of all time, yeah. like a terrible depression and us stuck in this like economic malaise for the rest of our lives since like 2009. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and it hasn't happened yet, but hope, you know, not hopefully, be- hopefully it stays off, but. Well, you know what will happen is the recession will hit, and that's when they'll announce Fusion's been discovered. Yeah, right. There you go. Yeah, Fusion yeah. is here, and then everybody – and then that'll that'll be the new bubble, and it, mm-hmm. that'll last for another couple of years. So let's go ahead. Yeah. Let's get to the last article real quick. Yes. Um. So I thought we would end things on a happy note because a lot of times yeah. we complain Our a downers. lot. Yeah, we are downers. and But I want to end on a happy note. So For- <laughs> Forbes has a really good article, and the article is um, – uh, let me open it again real quick. It's called How We Will Drink Wine in 2019, Trends According to Winemakers and Pros. Um, so this article, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's actually – it's a pretty interesting article. Uh, I picked out a couple of things that I thought were interesting from it, Mason. Um, the, the the specific area that I thought would be most interesting to you and most interesting to me was best values uh, and underappreciated gems. Um, so they are saying that in 2019, these are the things to keep your eye out on. So keep your eye on red blends, Chardonnay, and Rieslings from the Columbia Valley in Washington. Mm-hmm. So uh, Columbia Valley in Washington is a relatively popular region in Washington. Um, a lot of, you know, you and I discussed this, I think, on the last episode or maybe two episodes ago. The uh, trade laws are about to change between Canada and the United States, and this may open up the Canadian market a little bit more to us, and it also may open up the Washington market a little bit more to Canada. And so we may be seeing a little bit more coming in from BC, but also if the demand is high enough, we might be able to see some really nice um items coming out of Washington, but if it doesn't succeed and Washington is gearing up for it, we might be able to see some really good value. Also, this this year, the 2018 year, was a really good year in the Columbia Valley. The weather was very mild. There was no huge wildfires or anything like that. That is mm-hmm. that is particularly devastating down in Oregon and California. So um, I'm not a huge fan of Chardonnay. I do like red blends. Uh, I know you're a big fan of Riesling. So mm-hmm. this, this might be a really good opportunity for you and me to pick up some 2018 vintage Rieslings or uh, red blends from the Columbia Valley. Um, mm-hmm. There is. They also said, um, in addition, uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce this exactly. And I've Similian. Similian. Have, have you ever had one of those? So you know that wine I texted you the picture of, and I said, see if you could find it. Yeah, it's a Similian. Oh, okay. All right. So Similian Chardonnay and Shiraz from Austria's uh, Hunter Valley. They're mm-hmm. predicting that this is going to be a really good, um, a really good year for these particular wines, and that they're going to be discounted because of the volume that they've put out, um, and also some easing trade restrictions between the United States and Australia, which is nice. Um, there's also the uh, Yuko Valley in Mendoza, Argentina. They are very famous for their Malbecs. You and I have both had Malbecs from um, Mendoza. I am not a huge fan of Malbecs, but mm-hmm. I am a huge fan of Cab Franc. And apparently the last couple of years, uh, Argentina in their higher altitude vineyards have been planting a lot of Cab Franc. Their harvests are coming in in 2018. They're going to be produced. They'll be putting out to the market, the international market in particular, a lot of Cab Francs. The Cab Franc market, unless you're looking at French wines, is very slim pickings. They mm-hmm. they, they just don't grow that much in the United States. They grow some, they grow some California grows some Virginia. Actually, I think does really well with Cab Francs. Um, particularly, there's a Green Hill Winery up in Northern Virginia around Manassas, um, or as Nate says, Manasses. And um, <laughs> there is a, a Green Hill Winery up there, or you know Manasses, Warren, Warren, Virginia, that area. Mm-hmm. They make an outstanding Cab Franc. So Virginia is a great place for that, but it looks like that um, 
Mendoza is going to start producing these Cab Francs and they're going to be a really good value because that's not what they're famous for. And it's also, mm-hmm. again, a great year for Cab for Cab Franc. Well, for all wines in Argentina, they've had a really great year. Not a lot of fires, not a lot of bad weather. And Argentina has a huge recession going on. Yeah. And the peso down there has lost an extreme amount of value. Yeah. So that the and- dollar. Oh, man. We got to get. I mean, if, ja- if Jackson can get, his, like, depending on what Jackson needs to do, this would be a good time to pick up a lot of Argentina and stuff mm-hmm. and contracts and things like that. This would, and this actually kind of brings me to my next thing, is is the, the strengthening of the dollar versus other currencies also plays into this next, rec- next recommendation from Forbes is uh, Germany, again, had an amazing year. Mm-hmm. And their Rieslings are supposed to be like the best Rieslings they've ever produced for 2018. Uh, nice. Like ever in, you know, in recorded modern history. And mm-hmm. you're a huge fan of Rieslings. You've really, you've really turned me on to Rieslings a lot. I like them, especially a really dry Riesling. They've mm-hmm. also, over the last several years, have been downtrending in popularity in America. But with the popularity of, um, of other types of wines, rosés, and that sort of thing, um, they're, they've started lowering the price and the dollar is strengthening against the euro. And so we could, you can get very good deals on top end Rieslings from Germany, from the Ger- German estate wineries. Um, excellent weather in Germany this last, uh, year. They'll, they, they are producing more than they've ever produced because their yield was so high and you can, you can probably get a really good deal, um, for the, Buck, I, I the article itself didn't say, but like a good Riesling shouldn't run you more than twenty five dollars. And and this is just me getting information from other sources. Is you can get mm. a good Riesling for twenty five bucks, a good dry Riesling. You and I have both done um, several really good dry Rieslings, mm-hmm. and it should be even cheaper next year. Yeah. So um, let's go to Germany and get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And get ha- yeah, well, we'll get stocked up and get hammered. And yeah. um, <laughs> then another one is. Um, uh, French rosés from outside of uh, Provence. I don't Provence. know where that is, but apparently France has had an outstanding year as well. And you and I have actually covered the European weather this year. Britain mm-hmm. has had outstanding weather. France has outstanding weather. Germany's had outstanding weather. Everybody's had great weather this year, and that means that they're that they're produ- the amount of grapes that they're pro- producing is very high. Um, and also it's particularly conducive to really good rosés in France. And mm-hmm. because of the strengthening of the dollar against the euro, you can get a rosé for very inexpensive. The market for rosés is also currently way flooded. Uh, and hmm. because, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah it's the popularity. So it's off. the popularity. So you can get a really good French rosé. It's going to be a little more expensive probably than one outside of uh, outside of the United States, but for the value for the taste, you're probably going to be doing really well to get a French rosé. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've got a, my own personal recommendation that's not from this article, and this is from other things that I've been reading about a little bit. This is Jake's recommendation, and this is to look for uh, Pinot Noir from Santa Cruz Mountains in California in 2019. So Santa Cruz Mountains is not really greatly appreciated for Pinot Noir. It is, um, you're going to get it for about $20 cheaper per bottle than a good Pinot Noir from Oregon. And Mm -hmm. it is not a very widely recognized region for Pinot Noir, but they do produce a very consistent, very tasty Pinot Noir. Mason, are you a big fan of Pinot Noir? I I like Pinot Noir a lot, but I I don't remember if you do or not. We had a conversation about Pinot Noir where I had that Oregon one that was like, I thought I was getting a super cheap deal, but you know, with the Kroger thing, we're not sure. Yeah. Um, And it just didn't have a strong flavor to me. But, you know, after tonight having uncorked, let the wine open for 
you know, several yeah. hours, um, leaving it in the glass much longer. I have a feeling I probably would like some of the subtleties of noir more, mm-hmm. but you know, because I don't have a strong sense of uh, taste fully, nor a strong sense of smell. I think a lot of the subtleties of the cheaper noirs right. um, are just lost on me. It's not that they're okay. not good wine. It's just, I'm not getting it. And noir is supposed to be kind of like the softest of the reds. It, it is. Like, yeah. Per- general understanding yeah it is it is a very it's a much more delicate flavor which is Mm -hmm. interesting because i don't like malbecs which are a very delicate flavor as well but pinot Mm -hmm. noirs i think i appreciate a lot i I like the oregon pinot noirs they do have like a strong like um like a like a loamy mushroomy flavor that you don't get with other wines and i think that's very interesting um Mm -hmm. it's great with like chocolate or like uh like uh chocolate ice cream that kind of thing Mm mm-hmm um, and so I do appreciate Pinot Noir. I think Santa Cruz, because you can get a really good one for $25, it's um, going, like I was checking those out at, at Total Wine. You can get really good Santa Cruz Pinot Noir. They don't have a huge number of them, but from what I understand, this last year, the fires were mostly nowhere near Santa Cruz, and so you're not going to get any sort of smoke issues with it. Um, their production wasn't haltered by the fires, and um, even though I, in my mind, like picture Santa Cruz as a beach resort because you know in California you always had these commercials it was like at the Santa Cruz beach boardwalk in the warm California sun <laughs> there are the Santa Cruz mountains that are right next to that and that's where they grow the Pinot Noirs so it is a damper climate it's a higher altitude climate it is very similar to Oregon and mm-hmm. they produce a very high quality Pinot Noir my other recommendation is I've been hearing and reading a lot about the amazing weather that they've been having in New Zealand for Pinot Grigio mm. you and I had a Pinot Grigio from there that we didn't think was great I think mm-hmm. it was I think it was a cheap one yes I think if we went up to about a $25 bottle Pinot Grigio for New Zealand in 2018 vintage. I think we would probably get high quality. There's a lot of the wine experts who are saying that uh, New Zealand is underappreciated for the Pinot Grigio because most of what they export is cheap wine. And um, a lot of it's not actually New Zealand wine. It's that they... They will purchase grapes from elsewhere and bottle it there, and it'll be labeled as if it was a New Zealand wine. But the actual higher altitude Pinot Grigio that they grow in New Zealand um, is very, very good, uh, very grassy, very like kind of like lemongrass. Uh, well, remember has, the has, one we had was very grassy. Yeah, it was very grassy, but it was not a very strong flavor in general. It was just kind of like nothing. True. Yeah. I mean, it was grass overall. Yeah. Yeah, I would say grass overall, but they were they were saying like lemongrass, very strong flavor. So, if that's typical of a Pinot Grigio, you and I maybe should try a couple of Pinot Grigios around the same time with a uh, more expensive New Zealand one. Mm-hmm. And, and this is something I'm appreciating a little bit more lately is that you can get a really good deal for ten or fifteen dollars. But yes. if you go up to twenty five dollars, you're getting a lot more complexity for your dollar when you go over 20 when you go over maybe 40 that's where it it starts mattering a little bit less and you really have to jump to these much higher levels like pina yeah like pina which was uh what 97 98 dollars 89 okay so a very expensive absolutely delicious very complex very smooth awesome Cab Sauv and mm-hmm. from Napa, wasn't it? Yeah, it was from Napa. Yeah. So, and this is very notorious of Napa for anybody who's looking maybe for holiday gifts or something like that. 
um, Napa wines are going to be more expensive. They're also going to be, you're going to get what you pay for. You're not going mm-hmm. to be disappointed with a $100 bottle of Napa Cab Sauv. You might be disappointed with a $100 bottle of Cab Sauv from like Sonoma, which is very close mm-hmm. because Sonoma has a, um, is not as consistent as Napa, but, mm-hmm. or from what I understand, like I'm not an expert, yeah. but like from what I understand, it's not as consistent. But when you look for like a nice, $40 bottle of Pinot Noir from Santa Cruz, you're going to get a really great deal. This is going to be the equivalent of a $80 or $90 bottle of Pinot Noir from Oregon, from Willamette Valley. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so um, this is... I've been looking into this a lot lately is that like the, the idea of, of like just deal seeking in general because you and I are both deal people. Mm-hmm. And, and like we also have to get out of the mindset of lower price deal, like right. the lowest price deal right well and, and, there, and sometimes you can get a good one like one of the things that oh, i've been reading about pina. is yeah pina well i mean the riojas can be down in the 10 15 range and you can get great great riojas for 15 dollars. Mm-hmm. and it's because of the way that the the trade laws are set up the perception of, of rioja and you, you just have to know the years so like for example one of the things that jackson was telling us about uh on the last episode and i think you guys should really check out episode 33 and 34 if you're interested in french wines is that i think it was 25 15 and 2016 really great years for Bordeaux mm-hmm. but 20, was the last 10 years he was saying almost was it the last 10 years I, I know yeah. he was giving specific years because he said there was a certain year that was just not a good year but they no he said that's why I said almost there was okay, one almost. or two in there okay I would have but to I, I would don't have think to look they labeled up. them um, you know, I don't think they produced a vintage. Let, let, let me let me look it up real quick because, and I'll yeah. cut out the pause because well, he told me in a tweet. Well, while you're looking, so what I'll say is, uh, Provence is in southern France and it's on the Riviera. So if you know where Nice is, which is basically on the border of, it's not Nice itself is on the border of Italy, but like the County de Nice, the county of Nice, is on the border of Italy. You know, down in very southern. Um, France, Provence is the going towards Spain to the left, so of uh, Nice. So it's very southern Spain or southern France in, in like the Riviera area. Okay, so yeah, so he said 2015, 2016 are great years in Bordeaux. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't say anything else in my tweet, so I can't give you guys the bad year. But mm-hmm. um, there was, I guess, one year that was just not great. And those are, according to him, are though priced substantially lower. Yeah, um, so that makes me wonder, like, it, not that they were necessarily, like, what if that year wasn't bad necessarily? But by comparison to, like, you know, they maybe they got, like, so blown out over 10 years. It was hard to, like, take the measure back, even though they've been producing for so long. It's like, wait, we've had 10 great years. And it's like, you know, if we had the years we had before this and then we had this one, we still would have called this one one. You know what I mean? Like, it's, Yeah, yeah. Well, what, what, my own thoughts. (laughs) What do you think, Mason? Do you have any sort of predictions for what you want to try in 2019? I, I don't have a prediction. I have a request of listeners, let's say. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you and I started this show over a year ago and we started with Pinot Grigio in Cabernet. Mm -hmm. And now look at us. Yeah. Riojas, you know, Tempranillo, like, you know, these very specific yeah. wine types. Cab Franc, Bordeaux. You know, wine yeah. areas. So if you only like one type of wine and it and it's not a price thing. So like, let's say you're super price conscious and you can only 
buy a $3 bottle of wine. Hey, enjoy what mm-hmm. wine you're having. Maybe go up to a 10 every once in a while, but go into a section you don't buy wine from. Look at the price point you're normally spending and try one, but then don't leave it there. Because if you go into, like, if you normally spend $10 and you go and you're buying like $10 Rieslings from, you know, wherever your local, like, let's say you're in Oregon and you're buying a $10 Riesling because they grow, you know, there, you might not be, you might not do bad. But if you go try to buy a $10 Bordeaux, you're not going to do great by comparison. So try a different wine, but Mm -hmm. don't try one try several do a little bit of exploration to the wine type because like you're going you can like you may just have to go up five dollars and not that you need to go up five dollars all the time but like you may be able to and you may even be able to come down because like you know if you're normally spending forty dollars a bottle of wine well you can get riojas like if you're spending forty dollars on rioja like you better either be drinking like the best rioja there is or you're just wasting money because you could have gotten two great ones for you know 20 25 so like try something new because like i didn't think i'd be drinking what red wine at the end of last year yeah you know yeah. well <laughs> like, me neither me neither. like and actually in the fridge i got cooling down right now a vignette i i didn't mm-hmm. i would have never considered myself a white wine drinker because my opinion of white wine was that it was sweet mm-hmm. and that is not true vignettes can be very dry rieslings can be very dry pinot mm-hmm. grigio can be can be dry. It's usually a little bit sweeter, but also um, Sauvignon Blanc can be very mm-hmm. dry. So, like, there's a, there's a lot of different types of wines that you can that you can get that are going to be to your liking. And sometimes it's sort of hard in in wine in particular because it can be very intimidating. It's sort of hard to determine what it is that you like. So I mm-hmm. like tannic dry wines, and so I thought I only like Cab Sauve. But then mm-hmm. it turns out that like I do like the tannicness, but I appreciate a, a dry wine that is not tannic. And mm-hmm. um, and you and I have had that where. Like, well, Pina is a good example. It was tannic, but it was not nearly as tannic as some of the stuff that I drink. It was much, much more balanced. Yeah. And that's, and so, and my other final thing is before the year is over of 2019, if you haven't had a Moldovan, a Ukrainian, Mm -hmm. a Georgian, pick one of them, but like a varietal specific to them. Yeah. And I'll go ahead and give you, you guys the varietals real quick. Yeah. You can do Saparavi, which is a, mm-hmm. a really great red varietal. They have others, but a good red varietal that's very common, very inexpensive Saparavi. Um, there's also um, Reconteskeli. Mm-hmm. I'll put it in the show notes. Reconteskeli and Sapivari. Reconteskeli is the white varietal that's very popular. It's typically off sweet. It's not as sweet as like a Chardonnay, but it is sweeter than let's say a dry Riesling. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is an interesting flavor. Uh, and I think that you guys would be very well served to try it just because of the history that is part of these grapes and just yeah, they're so, good. Um, there's a CSIS show, uh, Russian roulette where they have a, <coughs> excuse me. They have a, um, like a Georgian wine expert on and, he runs like the Georgian import house, basically, of wines. And he goes through like five different wines. And we'll link to that episode because like while I don't we don't agree with uh, CSIS's like political stance and everything like that, this is an amazing episode when you're just considering wine. Like, I, and see, they go I see it. These. I'll go ahead and lick, I'll put it in our show notes right yeah. now. Wines of Georgia, Russian Roulette, episode number seven, it says. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll add it right now. Yeah. I mean like – 
and there, then you can find a place to buy them. But like, you gotta like, so not only try something different, but like, you know, we're drinking all the, like, you know, you can get Riojas and things like that. It's more difficult to get these other wines without going and looking for them, but you won't get to try new things if you don't support the industry. Yeah, that's and, true. You know, like if you like the mass produced wines and you like the sweeter wines, that's fine. Yeah. But like we all benefit from like getting to experience these other wines and like Georgia has been making wine for 8,000 years. Mm -hmm. Like the Moldovans for nearly the same time. The Ukrainians, I'm sure, are not far behind. Yeah, yeah. Not that Spain hasn't been making wine for a very long time, but these are where, like, like these parts of the Caucasus is where grapes came from. It right. seems. Yeah, and, and and the what's really interesting about it is I've given I've given just two varietals that are there, but the amount of varietals that exist there mm -hmm. is astronomical. And and it's not even like people just purposely making like a weird specific scientific wine type, mm -hmm. like where they're like oh we're gonna do it and you know these are just naturally oddly occurring wines wines that they bred for specific things that <laughs> fell out of favor years ago i mean it's just it's yeah. immense yep. and so you gotta try some of those and then do a south african they need the money <laughs> yeah that's true and i've got one more recommendation for everybody and the recommendation is you try a wine you like you tell us what it is you can you can do that by tweeting me at tasting anarchy or by emailing mm -hmm. us at tasting anarchy at gmail.com or commenting or you, or yeah, or commenting on the episode on Podbean or on uh, Stitcher or on Apple iTunes mm -hmm. uh, or Apple Podcasts or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, leave a rating on iTunes yeah. if you can. Yeah, because you know you can you can do all of these things. If you try a wine that you like and we've not done that, I am more than happy to go down to our local Total Wine or if I can if it's not there, go look for one another wine store that has it, and we will do that wine on the episode. Uh, I don't know about mm -hmm. you, Mason, but. Um, I've got access to so many wine stores here. I, I live in Dallas, so Dallas is a pretty big city. There's a lot of wine stores around here. I can probably get pretty much anything here. Yeah, and that's the thing is like if even if we can't get it, we'll find it. Or if you want to send it to us, yeah, you know, we're not against exchanging wine with people. Mm -hmm. Like if you have one, you know, one that we've talked about, you know, obviously we're not going to send you Pina, but you know, like if you have one where you're like, I, I just can't get that variety, or it's not available, and we can still get access to it, you know. Like, reach out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Tasting Anarchy Wine Exchange Club. Yeah. Um, so that's really all I've got for today. Uh, you got anything else you want to say, Mason? Uh, stay free. All right, stay free, everybody. Have a good night. Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Port and sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willis Den. He wasn't selling for American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, pass that bottle to me.
got a nickel, have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Some buys fifth and some buys four. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine, soda, you're drinking wine. Bye-bye. Wine, soda, you're drinking wine.